Well, good morning. How's everybody doing? Welcome back. It's been a long summer, a long, hot summer. I'm ready for uh, fall. We've lowered the temperature in the room to make it feel like fall, so uh, um, we'll, we'll warm it up in a minute. Hey, uh, I want to welcome everybody here this morning. I also want to welcome, uh, I'm always forgetful to do this, I want to welcome everybody who's streaming online. Um, you guys may not know this, but we have uh, quite a few people who stream online. We have, let's see, um, our Thursday night group out in Burleson streams online. We have a Sunday night group that meets at the Fort Worth campus who streams online. We have a new Granberry group. There's about 20, 25 men uh, in Granberry who are streaming on Friday mornings at the La Quinta. Uh, they're streaming online. We've got a group in Eastland, Texas that streams online. And then we've got a group in Uganda, of all places, who streams online. So we have a lot of guys who are streaming online, so we want to make sure we recognize them. We're glad they're here. A um, little bit of housekeeping before we get started. If you're new, um, this will help you understand kind of how things work. But there's a, a handout on your table. It'll be there every week, and this is basically the teaching notes. Um, everything that you're going to see on the screen is going to be on this sheet of paper. So uh, quotes, um, passages, verses, everything will be there. Uh, you don't have to take a whole lot of notes. You'll notice there's homework in the back. Uh, that's optional. You don't have to do it. I, I would highly recommend that you do because it'll help you get ready for the next uh, lesson. Um, It'll only take you about 30 minutes if you, if you complete all the questions, but it'll have you read through the passage and help you prepare for the following week. The new thing you, you probably saw out there, if you didn't get one, make sure you grab one on the way out, is a flash drive. Um, it, it's amazing how many, how many guys, um, usually with gray hair, say, what's a flash drive? Um, this is a flash drive, and on it, the reason we did this is... Um, Part of your homework is reading what's called devotionary. Devotionary is something I do every morning. I get up and I um, read through the scriptures and I write a devotionary, kind of a daily devotionary. And earlier in the year, I did Genesis. Um, Genesis is 50 chapters long, so that devotionary is well over 600 pages, okay? I wasn't going to print that out for you. So we've put it on a flash drive and uh, you can print out the pages as you need them because it's part of the homework. And also on there are 11 folders, and in those 11 folders are handouts for every week of this 11-week series. Um, so we've preloaded it. It's there for you. You can print them out. You can read them. Because here's the deal. Um, we're not going to be able to cover everything in these sessions. And so I've given you all kinds of articles and white papers on all kinds of questions that you're going to have about the book of Genesis. Most of you are here because you have questions about the book of Genesis. Um, I'm going to answer as many of them as I can, but many of them will go unanswered. So all that reading material is there for you to dig as deep as you want to dig and go as far into the book of Genesis as you want to go. So that's kind of how it's going to work, and this morning's going to be an introduction, so we're going to jump right into it. Let me pray for us, and we'll get started. Lord, we do thank you for uh, this privilege to come together and study your word. We pray that you would guide this time together, guide me as I try to teach what you've given me to teach, that it would be from you and not from me. And we pray that every one of us would hear from you and that, Father, you would speak to us, uh, reveal yourself to us through this incredible book, Genesis. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so here's what I know. 
every guy in this room has questions when it comes to Genesis. And a lot of you have come up to me um, over the last few weeks as, as we've gotten closer and closer to studying the book of Genesis. And I've had guys come up on Sunday mornings and at the kiosk at the Fort Worth campus, and, and they, they ask me all kinds of questions. Here's just a few. Were the dinosaurs on the ark? You know, I have no idea, okay? Um, what do we do with the dinosaurs? Where do they fit into the story? It seems like we're all obsessed with dinosaurs. It's, it's interesting that with the recent drought that we know in Granbury, more of the streams have been dried up, and so they found more and more dinosaur tracks. And, you know, so th but this is a huge one to a lot of people is what do we do with the dinosaurs? Uh, should we believe in evolution? Uh, what do we do with evolution? Uh, do we kind of do some kind of hybrid evolution creation? Do we, what do we do with that? Another one that keeps coming up is, how did light exist before the sun and the moon? Now, if you've ever studied the opening chapters of Genesis, you run into this little conundrum where God creates the light, but he hasn't yet created the sun, the moon, and the stars, so where'd that light come from? And, and people grieve over that, they wrestle over that, they struggle with it. Um, what about Cain and Abel? Did they marry their sisters? Where did they get wives from? Um, and it, I, I find this fascinating that we get obsessed with this. You know, wh where do they get their wives from? I, you know, the answer is, I don't know. I, I'm going to assume that God made their wives. Did they marry their sisters? More than likely, yes. But what, what, that's, I thought that was wrong. Well, ultimately, it is wrong. But God ordained it that way. How about this one? If God made everything, did he make evil? You know, we, we wrestle with that. Where did this serpent come from, and where did he get the idea to tempt Eve and Adam, and where did Satan come from, and where, where do we put all this stuff? And here's my question. Did God make fire ants? If he did, then he made evil. You know, I hate fire ants, so what, what, do we do, what do we do with all these questions? And the greatest question of all when it comes to the book of Genesis is this one. Is it even necessary to study this book? You know, several years ago, I taught the book of Revelation. Uh, it's interesting that the two books that we struggle with the most are Genesis, which starts the Bible, and Revelation, which ends it. One tells us how it all began. One tells us how it's all going to end. And we wrestle with both books, and we wrestle with this one. Should we even study it? Is it important? Um, why, why even bother? It seems to be about the Israelites, and what does it have for me? Here's my hope. As we dig into this book, you're going to find out that Genesis is so full of application for you. It's going to have so much application about God and about your relationship with God. So I believe it's incredibly necessary that we study it. Uh, Dr. Henry Morris is one of the many commentaries I've used in studying Genesis over the, the last few months. He says this, all the great doctrines of Christianity, now, now catch this, Sin, atonement, grace, redemption, faith, justification, salvation, and many others are first encountered in Genesis. And he is so right. If you go back and you study it in depth as we're going to do, you're going to find out that all of these doctrines are there. It is hardly surprising, therefore, that the greatest attacks on the Bible have been directed against the integrity and authenticity of Genesis. It is amazing how many people, including Christians, so-called Christians, who question the, the veracity, the integrity the accuracy of the book of Genesis. They, they write it off. They, they disclaim it. They discredit it. 
And, and it's because I believe that it's, it's foundational. If you don't understand Genesis, you will never understand the rest of the Bible. It won't make sense. The New Testament doesn't make sense without the Old Testament, and the Old Testament begins with this book called Genesis, and that's why it's important. Arkin Hughes says, what we know about God, about creation, about ourselves, about salvation begins where? In the book of Genesis. It provides the theological pillars on which the rest of the Bible stands, and nothing could be more true than that. As I studied it over this last year and kind of blogged my way through it, it was amazing to me how how much it made clear the rest of Scripture, how things began to fit together better than ever before as I worked my way through this book. It's not a difficult book. It's, it's a somewhat hard-to-understand book at times, but it's really pretty clear if we keep it within its context, and we'll talk about more of that in just a second. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said this, and, and Martin Luther had a way of saying things that were pretty blunt, um, he was German, uh, pretty matter-of-fact, and so he says this about Genesis, it contains things the most important and at the same time the most obscure. You know, you'll read through Genesis and you, you can't help but go, well, what do I do with that? You know, and you start having questions like, well, did Cain and Abel marry their sisters? And where did these people come from? And how did this happen? And why did God do that? It, it can be very obscure, but it's also incredibly important. And so we have to wrestle with the things that it says and the things that it tells us. He goes on and says, who could explain all these momentous things with sufficient appropriateness and success for interpreters and commentators have confused and tangled them with such a variety, diversity, and infinity of questions that God has reserved the full and sound understanding of this chapter to himself alone. He's particularly talking about the opening chapter of Genesis chapter one, which we're going to start with today. And he says that commentators, theologians, People have been trying to understand Genesis for generations. And here's the deal. God doesn't always give us the answers we're looking for. Because sometimes we're looking for the wrong, we're asking the wrong question. And we're wrestling with the wrong things. And so what we're going to find out is that there are all kinds of questions that are going to come into your mind. But what we want to do is redirect them where God wants them to go. What does God want you to know? What does God want me to know about this book? A.W. Pink says, we don't know whether the primitive heaven and earth were created a few thousand or many millions of years ago. We're not informed as to whether they were called into existence in a moment of time or whether the process of their formation covered an interval of long ages. What's he saying? There are certain things we just don't know. I've given you a bibliography of books that I've either read through already or I'm working my way through as I study through this book. And here's the amazing thing. I've run across so many books where people are wrestling with the age of the earth. Okay? That's going to come up, right? How old is the earth? Is it billions of years old? Is it 6,000 years old? You know, again, what do we do with the geological strata? What do we do with dinosaurs? What do we do with all these things? But what A.W. Pink is saying is that you know, we, we really don't know. Why don't we know? Because God doesn't clearly tell us in this book. It's not a scientific journal, guys. That doesn't mean it's not scientific in its nature. It's just not intended to be a scientific textbook. It's it's a word from God to the people of God, and that's how we want to approach it. So there's a lot of things we don't know. He says, the bare fact is stated in the beginning God created, and nothing is added to gratify the curious. 
And see, that's why people get frustrated with the book of Genesis is because it doesn't answer their particular questions. If you come with all these questions, and I don't mind you having questions, and God certainly doesn't mind you having questions, but if you come with demanding that God answer those questions, you're going to probably end up disappointed because he's going to answer questions you have not yet asked or even thought of. And so that's what's so important about the book of Genesis is that it does answer questions, but they're the questions that God wants us to ask about him about us, about sin, about life, about eternity, about redemption, about all those doctrines. And so here's the warning as we go into the book. It's going to require faith to study the book of Genesis. That should be a no-brainer for every guy in the room, right? It's a book of the Bible. The whole Bible requires faith. But as you study Genesis in particular, just like when you study the book of Revelation, it requires a certain amount of faith. Trust in God that he knows what he's doing and he knows what he's trying to tell, tell you. And so according to James Montgomery Boyce, our views about the nature of the book will determine how we interpret it. If you come at it as a scientific textbook, you're going to be highly disappointed because it's not going to answer the questions you bring. If you come to it as the Word of God, as a message from God to the people of God, then you'll more than likely not be disappointed because God is going to speak to you through this book. He's spoken to me over the last months just in preparation for this series, but it's going to require a bit of faith. And that's how we need to come to it in terms of interpreting it. So here's what it's not. And this is, again, maybe may a no-brainer to you, and you may already understand this, but if you don't, it's important that you understand it's first and foremost not a theological fiction. What do I mean? It wasn't something made up by men. It wasn't something that we created. We didn't come up with this idea. We didn't come up with the idea of creation and fabricated this idea of God making the universe. We didn't come up with this. We didn't come up with the idea of Abram being chosen and the people of Israel. It's also not a collection of myths. You know, some of the, the more liberal side of Christianity today will say that it's a great book, it's a good book, but it's a book of myths that applies to spiritual life, but it's not historical. It's more mythological. Or they'll say it's just an extended allegory. These are not real people, they didn't live in real time, and these are not real events. These are allegorical tales that are meant to help us live our lives on this planet. And I couldn't disagree more, because here's what it is. This is what we as a church believe about this book. It's a divinely inspired historical record. It, it's a record of what happened in time. It's also a literal account of literal people. What people? The people of God particularly the people of Israel. And that's going to be important for us to understand, too, as we go through this book. Here's what is amazing is that the Bible was written for us, right? It's the Word of God to the people of God. But here's where we kind of make a mistake, I believe. It's divinely inspired, right, the whole book from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But we forget sometimes that it was written, every, every letter, every book, was written for a particular people at a particular time going through particular circumstances. It's applicable to you and I living here in the 21st century, but it wasn't written for us. It wasn't written to us. It was written to a particular people living at a particular time going through particular circumstances. And we need to keep it in that context. We need to remember who it was written to and who it was written by. 
So before we begin with Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, we need to understand these particular things. Context. What's the context? Genesis is part of the Pentateuch. What's the Pentateuch? Well, the Pentateuch literally means the five scrolls. And it's the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, again, you may know that, and you may think, well, this is kind of dumb, this is kind of simplistic, but it's so important that we understand that. Over the years, what I've done with the book of Genesis is I've lifted it out of its context, and I've studied it independently as a book by itself. And I've never kept it within the context in which it was intended, which is part of the Pentateuch, which is also called the five books of Moses. Those first five books were written together, and they're written by Moses. It's sometimes referred to by the Jews as the Torah, the law. And again, it's all five books, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And they were written, again, at a, tip, uh, a particular time, and they all at one time were a single book. It was later on that they were divided into five books. And, and why is that important? Because you can't just lift one out from the others. I'm, I'm working my way through the book of uh, Numbers right now uh, in, in writing a devotionary on Numbers. And you can't study Numbers without studying Leviticus. And you can't study Leviticus without studying Exodus. And you can't study Exodus without understanding Genesis. Because they all at one time fit together as one book. A single unit, a single set, with a single message. Meant to be read together. Now, we're not going to read through all five books. We don't have time to do that. But we are going to delve into all of those books in order to understand this book, the book of Genesis. And we have to keep reminding ourselves that it was written with one audience in mind, and it wasn't us. It wasn't you. It, it was written for the Israelites, the people of Israel, the people whom God chose for himself, the nation of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. It was written for them. Now, why is that important? Because it keeps us from trying to make it all about us. And let's face it, we're all a little bit myopic, right? We all kind of focus on it. What's in this for me? It's, it's why you're here. You're here to learn something for you. And I'm glad you are, and you will. But you have to remember that as we study this book, we have to keep the context. Who was it written for? And it was written for these people. Here's just kind of an overview of the first five books of the Bible. Genesis is an explanation of how the Israelites came about. It answers the question, where do we come from? See, one of the things we forget is that the people of Israel were wrestling with, who exactly are we? They knew they had been chosen by God. They knew they had been set free from God from their slavery in Egypt, but they were still wrestling with, who exactly are we? See, those first five books of the Bible were written prior to them going into the land of promise. They're literally on the edge, on the border, standing on the east side of the Jordan River, getting ready to go in to a land that God has supposedly given them as their inheritance, and they're still wrestling with, what exactly are we? Who are we? Where did we come from? That's what Genesis answers. Exodus is a recounting of how they got delivered. You're familiar with the book of Exodus, right? It's how they got set free from their captivity, and it answers the question, why did God choose us? We were living in Exodus as slaves. Why did he set us free, and why did he take us all across the wilderness to this crossing to go over into the land? Leviticus, then, is a prescription for how they're to live their lives, a prescription for holiness. It's all about the law. It's all about the tabernacle, the sacrificial system. It's how to find redemption, forgiveness for your sins. 
It's basically, what does God expect from us? And if you read the book of Leviticus, it's pretty intense, right? There's a lot of laws in that, that book that I read and I go, wow, I am so glad I wasn't alive then. I'm so glad I'm not living under the law. But this is what God expected from them. And then you, you fast forward and you go study Deuteronomy and Deuter- or Numbers, and it's a description of their faithlessness. How did they do? Didn't do well at all. Over and over again, these people failed to live up to God's holy standards. And the question they had in their head is, what's he going to do to us? And it's, it's, it's fascinating. If you study the book of Numbers, there's, like in chapter 16, there's, there's a case where Korah and a couple of his buddies decide to rebel against Moses, and they say, who, who made you king? We're all chosen by God. Why do you get to make all the decisions? We want to make the decisions. And what does God do? He destroys every one of them. He opens up the earth and swallows them. Wouldn't want to be alive at that point in time. And yet, what's God going to do to us? And, that, and what happens is the rest of the people go, well, is he going to do the same thing to us if we don't obey? And then Deuteronomy is finally a call to faithfulness and fruitfulness. Deuteronomy is written by Moses right before the people are going into the land, and it's basically an extended speech that he gives, and then he records it. And it's him warning the people, hey, you got to be faithful, you got to be fruitful, you got to do what God calls you to do. What does he want to do with you? He wants to bless you. He wants to make you fruitful. He wants to do great things with you, but you're going to have to be obedient. And it's him warning them about the need for faithfulness in spite of all their unfaithfulness. So what's interesting is if you study Genesis and if you study Numbers and Deuteronomy and Exodus and Leviticus, you find some interesting contrasts. Here's just one. In Genesis chapter 3, you're very familiar with the story. In Genesis, God's people, Adam and Eve, are leaving Eden. You know the story, right? They, they sin, they rebel against God, they eat of the forbidden fruit, and they get kicked out of the garden. So Genesis 3 is them being cast out of the garden, this beautiful place that God prepared for them. It says, so the Lord banished them from the garden of Eden and sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. They, they were cursed. And now everything he's going to do, he's going to do by the sweat of his brow. So they've been in a garden, in perfect communion with God. They sin against God, they're cast out. That's Genesis chapter 3. Fast forward to Deuteronomy chapter 30. God's people are standing on the Jordan River getting ready to go into where? Canaan. What's Canaan? Canaan is the land promised to them by God. It's their inheritance. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's fruitful. It's abundant. It's referred to in the Old Testament as the garden of God. You you see the similarities? Genesis 3, they're kicked out. They're kicked out of the garden, and they head east. Now they're heading west into where? The garden of God, into this beautiful place. Here's what Moses tells him. Now listen, today I'm giving you a choice between life and death, between prosperity and disaster. For I command you this day to love the Lord your God and to keep his commands, decrees, and regulations by walking in his ways. If you do this, you will live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are about to enter and occupy incredible connection between Genesis chapter 3, Deuteronomy 30. And there's 40 plus years in between, well, more than 40 plus years, thousands of years, potentially tens of thousands of years. We don't know exactly how much time passed, but we do know this, that the same thing is true in Genesis chapter 3 as is true in Deuteronomy 30. 
you can't stay in the land unless you're obedient. You're not going to be fruitful. You're not going to multiply. You're not going to be abundant if you fail to be obedient. It was true for Adam and Eve. They failed. They got cast out. It's going to be true of the people of Israel. So in Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to go into this in detail over the next weeks, but it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. He puts Adam and Eve in this incredible place called the Garden of Eden, and he tells them, this is yours. I'm going to be here with you. I'm going to walk with you, talk with you, have communion with you. You're going to have no problems. You just got to obey. And what was the one thing they couldn't do? It's the one thing they did. Don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Everything else is yours. In abundance, enjoy, be fruitful, multiply. But they failed. They didn't do what God called them to do. And what's interesting is that's called the creation mandate, be fruitful and multiply. And it still holds true. It holds true today, but it also held true in Deuteronomy chapter 30 as the people of Israel were getting ready to go into the land. And so the Pentateuch was written to these people. Again, where are they? They're standing on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in to a land flowing with milk and honey, fruitful, abundant, rich, but also filled with giants and all kinds of problems. But he says, I'll bless you if you're just obedient. And the whole Pentateuch is about that. Genesis is all about teaching them some pretty significant things. And that's why it's applicable to you and I today. Here's what it's going to teach us. Theology. The doctrine of God. Who is God? Who is the God we worship? And what's interesting to think about is that the Israelites, when they were standing on the edge of the promised land, getting ready to go in, they knew a lot about other gods. Why? Well, for 400 years, they had lived in where? Egypt. And what did they do when they lived in Egypt? They worshiped false gods. The land they're going into is full of false gods. They knew a lot about false gods. What is God trying to do? He's trying to teach them about the one true God. And so this book is full of theology. It's full of anthropology. It tells us about man. One of the things I encourage you to do is you read through these passages uh, each week, I want you to think about what does it teach you about mankind? And it ain't a pretty picture. It, it, and it's not a pretty picture of you and I, because as it shows you mankind, it shows you you. And so it's all about who is man. It's all about harmatiology, which is basically sin. What is sin? We live in a society today where sin doesn't exist. Sin is a fabrication. Uh, there is no such thing as sin. Do what's right in your own mind. Do what you, whatever you want to do. It's always up to you, but according to the Bible, there is such a thing as sin, the doctrine of sin, and it's all over the book of Genesis, and then soteriology, salvation. This book is going to tell you more about salvation than any other book in the Old Testament. The only books I know of that tell you more about salvation are the four Gospels and probably the letters of Paul, but Genesis is right up there with them because it's where the idea of salvation begins. So here's the deal. Here's what I want. I need you to keep in your head as we go through these weeks. These people, the people of Israel, are still figuring out who it is they are. Yes, they're standing on the edge, getting ready to go into the promised land, but they're still not quite sure who exactly we are as a people. And they're still trying to figure out who this God is that delivered us. 
See, we think they had this incredibly great relationship with God. They're still wrestling with who is this God. We know along the way as they were going across the wilderness, right, they were still ready to go back to where? Egypt. They were still ready to go back and worship false gods because they weren't quite sure this God knew what he was doing. And and it's all through the Pentateuch, this idea that, okay, you freed us, but now you got us stuck in this wilderness and you're feeding us manna and you're feeding us, you know, water from a rock. But, you know, it was better back in Egypt. They're still doubting the integrity of God. So they're still trying to figure out who this God is. And you know what? So are we. I don't know about you, but as, as we've gone through the last couple of years with all the madness of the pandemic and social justice issues and the political mess we're living in right now, it is so easy to go, God, what in the world are you doing? Have you lost your mind? Have you turned your back? Are you not even there? Do you not care? And so this book is going to help us understand who our God is. What kind of God do we worship? And that's exactly what they needed to hear. Because here's the, a real brief overview of the Israelite history. And it's not a pretty picture. So we know that their forefather Abram was called by God out of Mesopotamia, far to the east, basically the Babylonian area. He's called by God to go to Canaan. And he's a pagan when he's called. He, he's not a Yahweh worshiper. He doesn't know anything about this God, Yahweh. He just gets called and said, you're mine. You're going to Canaan. And he goes. He suddenly understands that there's this God named Yahweh, and he begins to follow him. When they get there, they find out the whole land's full of pagans, the whole land's full of evil people, the whole land. Well, where do these people come from? Well, Genesis is going to tell us. They end up later being relocated to Egypt, right? We know the story. There's a famine in the land. Jacob and his family, about 70 people, make their way to Egypt, where his son Joseph is now second in command in Egypt, and they end up there, and they end up what? In captivity. Over 400 years, they stay in captivity as as slaves to the people of Egypt, and then God miraculously delivers them through Moses. See, this is the brief history of the people of Israel, and all during that time, God is revealing himself to them. This is who I am. This is who you are. This is what sin is. This is how you got here. This is what's wrong with the world. This is how you can restore things. This is how it all works as God reveals himself to them. Listen to what he tells them back in Exodus as they're getting ready to leave the land. He says, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. All through the book of Exodus, it's interesting that this phrase is used over and over again by God, and you will know, and you will know that I'm God. When I do this, you'll know that I'm God. When I do this, the Egyptians are going to know that I'm God. You will know that I'm God. But he keeps saying it over and over again because they aren't quite still sure that he's really God. And guess what? You and I wrestle with the same thing. He shows us that he's God, and then something happens in our life, and we go, "Mm, I don't know. He doesn't really seem to be God. He He doesn't seem to be taking care of this problem that I have. He didn't answer this prayer that I prayed. He doesn't give me the things that I want. Is he really God? Is he really in control when the world seems to be going to hell in a handbasket? Is he really God? And God is always showing us who he is. Why? So that we shall know that he truly is God. That's what the book of Genesis is really all about. 
I love this from Alan P. Ross. He says, it's essential to ask why the new nation of Israel needed to have this material, these five books of the Pentateuch, and to have it written as it is. The portrayal of God as the creator and sustainer of all life has great bearing on the fact that God was now creating Israel as a new nation among the nations. The God who created Israel as his own people is the sovereign God who created the universe and all that's in it. What's he saying? He's saying these people needed to understand just how great their God really is. How does Genesis open up? In the beginning, God. You want to know who your God is? He's the God that created everything. You want to doubt whether your God can get you into the land of Canaan and conquer these giants in the land, these evil people that have greater armies? Do you really want to know just how great your God is? Well, Moses says, I'm going to tell you. And that's what the opening chapters of Genesis is all about. They're a new nation. God has chosen them, set them apart. He's going to do great things with them, but they have to understand who he is. So Alan Ross goes on and says, this creation narrative traces how God transformed the chaos into the cosmos, turned darkness into light, altered that which was unprofitable to that which was good, holy, and worth blessing. This direction in the passage parallels the direction of the message of the Pentateuch as a whole, in which God redeems Israel from the darkness and chaos of Egypt and leads them on toward blessing and rest. See, there's, there's a, an incredible picture given in the opening chapters of Genesis, and it's given to the people of Israel to show them the same God who did this is going to do great things with you. You can trust him. You can rely on him. He is mighty. He is great. He is powerful. He is all-knowing. He, he can do whatever he sets out to do, and he has a plan. If you get nothing else out of the opening chapters of Genesis, God has a plan. God worked that plan. God worked that plan pretty perfectly to create all of this. But, but who, who wrote the book of Genesis? This is one of the other questions that comes up. Who wrote Genesis? What's interesting is the book never tells us. It's not like the letters of Paul where he opens up and says, this, this is a letter from Paul. This book never tells us who wrote it. And yet it's important that we understand that we believe as a church, and for years, thousands of years, the church has believed, the corporate church has believed that Moses wrote the book. It wasn't until the 17th century that it began to become into question, where theologians and thinkers, and it, you know, prior to the Enlightenment, everybody believed that the book was written by Moses. And then suddenly we get so smart that we decide that, well, we don't think he wrote it. We think it was written by a lot of different people. We think it was compiled by different people. Maybe Moses played a part, but we doubt that Moses really wrote it. Listen to this. For almost 1,800 years, hardly anyone questioned the unity of Genesis, whether the writers were rabbinical scholars of Judaism or the ecclesiastical scholars of Christendom. Thus, the Maimonides within Judaism, an Augustine within Catholicism, and a Calvin within Protestantism shared no disagreement on the point of Genesis' origin and composition. They all believed he wrote it, Moses. And, and that's the way we're going to approach it, that Moses wrote this book. All of them, for all of them, Genesis was a unified work and specifically the work of Moses. Why is that important? Because it's one book made up of five different books all written by the same guy. And I know it's easy to say, well, how did he write it if he wasn't there? He wasn't at the creation. How did he write it? Well, guess what? John, the apostle, wasn't at the end either, but he wrote about that. He wrote the book of Revelation given to him by a vision. 
This is an inspired book. That's why it requires faith. Moses somehow was made aware of these events. Why would they believe that? Why would these people for literally 1,800 years believe it was Moses? Because all throughout the, the Pentateuch, it states it. Look at this. Exodus 17, the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. We see in Numbers, Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by the command of the Lord. He's writing down, keeping a record of everything God tells him. Moses was divinely inspired. That's why it requires faith. No, Moses wasn't at creation, neither were you. Nobody was at creation except God. How did he get the information? More than likely from God, because God was there. And God gave him this information in order that he might record it. Look at Deuteronomy. When Moses had finished writing the words of this law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, he tells them to carry it with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Take this book of the law, put it by the side of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there as a witness against you. All five books are included and they're put in a safe place right by the Ark of the Covenant. It's divinely inspired. It's given to him by God, and it fits right in with 2 Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God, including the book of Genesis. And we've got to come to it with that attitude. This is a message from God to his people. So Jesus also believed that Moses wrote this book. And I figure if Jesus believed it, I think it's okay for you and I to believe it. Remember the story in... uh, Luke chapter 24, after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he starts making these appearances, and he appears to a couple on the road to Emmaus. And at first, they don't recognize him. They don't know it's Jesus, and they're, they're moaning and groaning about all the terrible things that happened in Jerusalem. And he goes, tell me about that. And they say, well, you know, this, this guy in Jesus, he, he, he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah, but now he's dead. And he hides his identity, but then he reveals himself. It's the risen Lord. Here's what he tells them. And and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Beginning with Moses, the books of Moses, the Pentateuch, he reveals himself. And then just a little while later, he appears to the disciples in a locked room, and they're in there hiding, and he appears to them. And listen to what it says. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. Jesus believed these books, and in particular this book, Genesis, to have been written by Moses. And so that's how we're going to approach the book of Genesis. Written under the inspiration of the Spirit, written for a particular people group, the people of Israel. It's a record of their history as a nation. Yes, it begins with the beginning of all things, but it very quickly moves to what? Their story. You know, the creation account only covers two, three chapters, really, and then it very quickly starts moving towards the people of Israel because they're the point. And it's a picture of God. Look for God. As you study and read Genesis, look for God and let it promote your faith in God. It's bolstered my faith. It's encouraged me to keep trusting in my God because of everything that's told about my God in this incredible book. C. John Collins says, The Pentateuch has Moses as its implied author, the generation who followed him out of Egypt as its implied audience, 
This means we read the books best when we read as if they record the words of Moses to Israel. And I love this next line. A good reader will try to put himself in the sandals of the implied reader. Here's what I need you to do. Every week, come in your proverbial sandals. Come ready to hear it through the ears of the Israelites. You're standing on the edge of the the promised land. You're getting ready to go into this land that God has promised to you. And guess what? What are you getting ready for? That same thing. Eternity, the kingdom. You're waiting. And he's trying to show you just how great he is so that you will trust that he will do what he says he's going to do. So how does it open up? We're just going to go real briefly into these opening two verses this morning. What does it say? You're so familiar with these verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. These verses are so familiar to you that they really don't mean much anymore. You don't think about them. You don't dwell on them. But what is he telling us? Why does the Bible start with this statement? He's telling these people that your God, this God who's chosen you and who's getting ready to bless you with this incredible land, is the God who made everything. Prior to time, space, matter, before anything existed, God existed. He was before time itself. He stands outside of time. He's not relegated to time. He's pre-existent. Nothing else is pre-existent. And what's really fascinating about this, if you study the creation accounts of the Babylonians and other people groups, to them, matter has always existed. In other words, what we can see, touch, taste, feel has always existed, and their gods were created from matter. There's a huge difference between their creation accounts and Genesis creation account. God existed before matter. He created it all. Look at Psalm 92. Before the mountains were formed, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from beginning to end, you are God. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. Their God is an everlasting, eternal, outside of time, creator of all things. Why is that important? Well, it should change the way you think about God. It says, God created the heavens and the earth. Elohim bara is the, the term there. God created. That, that term created, bara, is always associated with God and never with man. God did something that no man could ever do and never will do. He created. He shaped. He formed. He made something out of nothing. He created all that we know. And it's the same God who created Israel as a nation is the God who created the universe. Think about that. The God who created you, the God who chose you, the God who set you aside as his child, his son, is the same God who created the universe. Why in the world would you ever doubt that he's in control? Why would you ever doubt that he doesn't have enough power? And I really believe as you study through Genesis, you're going to find out is Genesis is a, a stinging indictment against all the other isms out there, particularly polytheism, pantheism. Why? Because the people of Israel had spent 400 years in Egypt where they worshiped the Nile. They worshiped crocodiles. They worshiped the sun, the moon, the stars. And and Moses is saying, you know what? He created all of that. You're worshiping the wrong thing. Your God is the creator of all things. God created and God alone. Look at Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that the entire universe was formed at God's command, that what we now see did not come from anything that can be seen. God created it all. 
Psalm 33, 6, the Lord merely spoke and the heavens were created. He breathed the word and what happened? All the stars were born. When he spoke, the world began. It appeared at his command. That's the God we worship. No, Genesis is not going to answer all your questions, but it should answer that question. What kind of God do you worship? The great God, the creator God, the creator of all things. And it tells us in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void. Darkness was over the face of the earth. It's amazing that within two verses, it's gone from the universe, right? God created the heavens and the earth, and now he focuses all his attention on the earth. It's geocentric. It's all about this place. Why? Why isn't he talking about the majesty of the sun, the universe, the galaxies? Why, why is he suddenly so fixated on the earth? Because that's the whole point of the Genesis story, the earth. It's all about the importance of the earth. Where do you and I live? The earth. Do I believe that there are other inhabited planets or even habitable planets? I really don't. Because I believe God created the earth with a purpose in mind as a place for mankind, for us to live. Not really sure why he did it. If I were God, I wouldn't have done it. But he did. And this place is unique. And yet we find that it's without form and void. It's disordered. It's empty. It's not quite ready at top. Tohu wabahu is the, is the Hebrew. It's kind of poetic. It just basically means it's a work in progress. He's not yet done doing what he's going to do. He's taking this unformed thing that's uninhabitable. It's uninhabited. There's nobody, nothing living there, and he's going to transform it. Why? Because it's not yet ready for man. You know, one of the things about anthropology is we found out that the Bible puts a real high priority on mankind. The longer I live, the less I think about mankind. Uh, the less I have respect for mankind because we seem to screw everything up. But God has a purpose for mankind. He has a plan. And that's what this book is all about. He's creating a place for his people. And yet we find darkness, kosik, obscurity, no light, something's missing. And yet God's going to invade the darkness with what light? And we'll get into this more next week. Something great is about to happen. God is doing something great. And it reminds me of Isaiah chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, a thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. The light has come. God's about to do something great. I love what Paul says to the Colossians. He rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of his beloved son. John writes in his gospel, the opening of his gospel mirrors Genesis 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So what do we do with all this? Something great's about to happen. We're in the opening verses, 1 and 2. We'll go deeper into them next week. God's about to do something great. Here's, here's something that really jumps out at me at the book of Genesis. God's always about to do something great. Always. And we doubt that. We read Genesis and go, oh, that's a wonderful story. I wasn't there. It doesn't really matter. But see, that same God is always about to do something great. He's about to do something great in my life and your life through this series. Not because of me, but because of who he is. So here's your discussion questions for this morning. I want you to discuss the kinds of questions that you brought to the table this morning. I know you came in with questions. Just get them out there. Just be honest. Uh, 
what are your questions about Genesis? And, and why do you think you have those kinds of questions? Then I want you to consider this. Why is it important for us to read this book through the eyes of the Israelites? And how could that change the kind of questions you ask about Genesis? And then finally, I want you to go back and read 1 Peter 2, verse 9. I want you to discuss how it relates to Genesis 1, 1 through 2, and how does it apply to the people of Israel, but then, more importantly, how does it apply to you and I today? Well, Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you that we are jumping into this incredible book, and I pray that over the weeks ahead that we would grow in our knowledge of you, that we would understand who you are and who we are, that we would understand the nature of sin and how you plan to deal with it, that, Father, we would see this as a, a book of history that that while it leaves a lot of questions unanswered, it answers all the pertinent questions, the things we really need to know. And I pray that every week you'd bring us back so that we might hear from you. And we pray all of this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.